Hello everybody, welcome to the second of our Science to Sport podcasts hosted on the Hub. Once again, we've got the four experts from Science to Sport, myself, Dr. Jeroen Swart, John Wakefield, Dr. Mike Posthumus, and Ben Capistanio. Also together with us is former professional mountain biker and industry expert, Steve Bowman. And Steve will be reading out some questions from the Hub uh, that have been forwarded to us, and we'll attempt to answer them as best we can. Steve, over to you. Right, guys. So the first question is from George and is as follows. Is there a defined set of TSS to use target based on the 3 plus 1 followed by a second 3 plus 1 week super compensation curve, say for base training as the intent? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to jump in here and try and answer and try and make sense of that question and, and I'll cover a few a few components of that question. So firstly, I think we need to understand what TSS is. Um, so TSS, TSS is your training stress score and um, a training stress score of 100 is defined as the hardest you can possibly go for one hour. Normally, if you do an easy two hour zone two ride, you might accumulate um, 80 TSS. So what George wants to know firstly is what target TSS should he be looking for? And I'm assuming he's talking about weekly targets. Now it's, it's very hard to, to tell someone you want to be doing a 700 TSS a week or 800 TSS a week. What you really want when you are building fitness, especially in a base phase, is progress to your weekly TSS from week to week. When, he, when in George's question he mentions a 3 plus 1, what he's talking about is generally you're talking about training for three weeks on and then having a rest week. So in these three weeks that you're training on, you want to generally be progressing TSS <laughs> gradually, not too sharply and sort of not maintaining the same TSS. So you want to slowly but surely increase the volume um, but not increase it too much. So your so your your TSS has to be based on your current level of fitness. Um, Jeroen wanted to pipe in there. Jeroen, did you want to add anything to that? I was just going to say exactly that in terms of your current fitness. You've got to look at where you are in your current level of fitness and then base the progression off that. And the one thing that people always bandy about is a, a, a progression of about 10% a week should yes. be about the maximum. You should try and push it up. So generally, listen to some um, training peaks. Um, if those of you that use training peaks generally recommend a CTL ramp of anything between five and eight. Now your CTL is your average TSS per day over the last forty-two days. It's your chronic load, and it's very, um, it's a very good indicator of your current level of fitness. Um, what that generally means is that. Is that you? You want to slowly increase your your CTL by between five and eight per week. Anything more than that is generally too too much, and anything less than that um, is generally not enough stress. So as Jerome said, ten percent is a very good guideline. So if you start with a TSS of four hundred a week, try and add a forty um, forty points. So four forty the next week, four eighty the following week, and that's a general good principle. Just to just to chime in there, Mike. I think 
we see it a lot with athletes who work with power meters um, a lot as they they almost chase the CTL. So they all they want to see on training peaks is that blue line going up and up and up. And just an important thing uh, to note is just pay attention to any sort of subjective measures of fatigue that you have as well. And don't I wouldn't encourage people to ignore that and sort of train through it, particularly if you're quite you know, maybe let's say you're you're into your third week of, of training. Maybe if you're feeling like you need an extra day off just to um, <clears throat> just to help recover so that you're good to go again and, and really get the quality of your training going, um, then I would encourage you to do that rather than focusing purely on CTL. So the TSS measurements and, and a lot of the power metrics are based purely on what we call an external load. Um, and uh, there's no internal uh, measure there. So we basically don't really have a measure of what's happening to you as, a, as an individual. And um, you know, the subjective ratings of fatigue can, can provide some sort of um, data or, or uh, information into maybe if you're ramping things a little bit too, too quickly. What and you're saying is listen to your body. Correct. And if you're feeling fatigued and you're exhausted, yeah. you probably need a recovery couple of recovery days or a recovery week, week yeah. and that'll allow you to adapt to that training load and improve. Otherwise you end up not adapting and you end up, or even worse, overtrained. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just a question on this, surely the fitter you get, um, that max of 10% progression is going to get harder to maintain, it'll dip off. Correct. So when you're unfit, it's probably quite easy to get 10% increases, the fitter you get it'll... Definitely an upper limit. So with the international athletes that I've worked with who are based in Europe, who have a big training history and uh, who, who basically just ride full-time. They get to recover and they focus very hard on their recovery. They can probably reach a CTL sometimes of up to 130. I hardly ever push anybody higher than that. Whereas an amateur athlete, a, a worker B5, you know, weekend warrior time, 80, 90 CTL is probably going to be the maximum they can tolerate before they break down. So I don't know if you agree, Mike. And some no, of I, I really agree with those figures. Um, generally, those the, the working-class heroes I work with um, are happiest and do their best between sort of 80 and 90. Generally anything over that is just too much stress for them to cope with. Because you've got to remember when you talk about stress, you've got to add your training stress to your daily life stress. Mm -hmm. So having a, having a family, having a, um, a busy work. Two kids. Um, two kids. Yeah. <laughs> Ask me about it. It all adds up to your daily stress. So you aren't able to, to cope with 140 or 140 like some, some tour pro riders are able to cope with. Um, what I also wanted to add, um, add to the, this discussion is that um, my talk about weekly progression, when we talk about weekly progression of TSS, we're really talking about progression of load. And that's something we, we specifically try and do during the base or the aerobic phases. Um, quite often, and with several of my athletes, as soon as your focus turns into intensity, um, there's, the progression we are looking for is a progression in intensity and not necessarily a progression in volume. So when you're following a periodized program, as you approach your event, your intensity is, is increasing, but your volume is decreasing. So if you're just looking at TSS per week, it's not always possible to progress TSS as your intensity increases because you are decreasing your volume as you're able to, having to increase your rest time to be able to recover from the higher intensity work. I do think that's a, a product of the the algorithms that Andy Kogan developed for, for training peaks, which I think underrate 
the stress of, of high intensity training. Mm. So I when you agree. do add in high intensity training, your CTL might even drop, even though you're actually putting a greater physiological stress in your body because they're artificial products, those, uh, those uh, performance management charts, and um, we're still validating them with the science anyway. So you know they're by no means based on, on very, very good science, even though they're widely used. And the problem with that is that as soon as an athlete seizes his PMC dropping and CTL dropping, he panics and thinks he's getting unfit. He or she thinks they're unfit, their form is dropping, etc. When in fact, normally the opposite happens and actually getting form and they're hitting their best numbers. Yeah, it's a very and big thing a, to try yeah. to convince them to. <coughs> yeah, that's the hard thing. You say, like, you're actually good here. You've done your best eight by twos, but then gone from 100 to 85 on the CTL. And, and then to, to, uh, <coughs> to that point, I like to Tony Peaks credits. I, know, I see they are now integrating a heart rate variability measure uh, with their performance management chart. Yeah. So the heart rate variability is there to basically provide that measure of internal load or an indication of how the athlete themselves are responding to the training, uh, which I think will add a big, um, it will be a big help, I think, for athletes going, going forward. So just one last thing. So when Mike was saying between 80 and 90 CTL is, typically South African races are three days and to have a CTL of that 80 to 90 for those three days for stage races if you are doing mountain bike races is look like it's a good point to be at is what I found with athletes. No, I'd agree. <coughs> Steve. Right guys, uh, <coughs> next questions. Uh, we've got a couple here from Anon. Uh, the first one is a bike foot related. Has anyone been able to demonstrate if the pedal stroke to produce tangential 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 forces from twelve to eight o'clock? Yeah, I think um, that actually goes. I see. There's another question from Anand. So if you, if we can go through the second question, yeah. I'll answer them. The together. second one is: Why do people still talk in terms of dead spot? I mean, it is it is a circle. If the correct pedaling technique is applied there would be no dead spots. So why do all studies continue in terms of dead spots? So to answer that, when you pedal on a bike, you don't produce force all the way around the pedal stroke. Only an electric motor does that. And the human body applies force to the pedal very differently. In fact, it, we have a very pronounced dead spot. So you produce a lot more force or torque on the crank during the middle of the, of the knee extension phase. In other words, if you're looking at it, a at, at, at it as a clock, with the pedal at the top being 12 o'clock, you produce most of your your peak forces at about 3 to 4 o'clock in terms of uh, where you can produce uh, power during the pedal stroke. And at the bottom of the pedal uh, stroke, so 6 o'clock and at the top 12 o'clock, are your two weakest points in your pedal stroke. And we see that the torque drops off there. So what a lot of people have tried to do is to try and teach cyclists to pedal in a more what we call mechanically efficient way. So the two important parts in terms of efficiency, there's mechanical efficiency and there's metabolic efficiency or what we call economy. And the mechanical efficiency means if you're pushing down on the pedal or around the pedal stroke, can you push the pedal evenly all the way around its pedal stroke? So that means pulling up when the pedal's coming up to the top, pushing down and also pushing forward over the top of the pedal stroke and pushing backwards to the bottom. And to do that, they developed a couple of instruments. So Frank Day developed uh, uncoupled cranks, what he marketed as what they call power cranks, where you had to actually pedal independently. So if you stopped pedaling, both pedals would fall to the bottom. And so you had to move each arm of the crank independently. And they looked at studies at whether or not forcing you to actually push the crank right around the pedal stroke improved 
your efficiency and it actually did exactly the opposite. So you actually expended more oxygen to produce the power when you try to pedal as smoothly as possible versus if you actually stomp on the pedals like an amateur does. So that's a negative finding, but it might actually not be a bad thing. And the problem is we haven't done the research. So here's the thing. If you're really at the limits of your ability, in other words, you're going up a climb and you're pushing really, really hard, at that point, it's probably not good to try and have a round pedal stroke and to try and produce force all the way around the pedal stroke. At that point, we all naturally revert to stomping on the pedals. And in fact, stomping on the pedals is from an, from an oxygen cost perspective, the most economical. But what they haven't studied is if you're doing a long race, three, four, five hour long race, can you save some of the, 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 the energy in those muscles, like your quads, which are used when you're stomping on the pedals, by having a round pedal stroke and using your calves, your glutes, and other muscles like the front of your shin, for instance, and that they contribute to the load when you're not at the absolute limit. And we actually still have to do that study because nobody's done it to date. And I think just based on the fact that professionals like to have a really round pedal stroke and that they spin at high cadences when they're not under stress, it's probably the way that they share the load between all those muscles. And so the short answer is, um, it's very hard to eliminate the dead spot and it might not be in your best interest to try and eliminate the dead spot when you're really trying hard. Doc, just to sort of add to an, uh, an anonymous question there, mm -hmm. I imagine when you're wanting to change your pedal stroke, that's not something that's going to happen overnight. It also takes not, a long time. You're not yeah. jumping on a watt bike, having a look at the peanut and, you know, doing an, a half an hour session in the gym and then... Talking about that peanut, on. so what you're talking about there is, is an optical representation of your pedal stroke. A lot of the new power meters, for instance, Pioneer has come out with a power meter, Garmin has their vector pedals, and a lot of the pedals now are starting to show you your efficiency in terms of a percentage value of how efficient you are mechanically. And all the riders are now targeting this and trying to improve their mechanical efficiency. So in line with what I said, yes, there might be a benefit, but in, to date, all the studies have shown exactly the opposite in terms of its effect on your economy. And so we might be chasing red herrings there and, and, and not necessarily focusing on the right things in terms of trying to improve that pedal stroke when it might not actually benefit. So you're saying we could, we could see an improvement in mechanical efficiency as indicated by our head unit or, mm. or the, the peanut, but that might result in an extra metabolic cost or oxygen cost to us and, and then effectively increased or earlier fatigue. Uh, exactly. Okay. So when you're really going to push... a, a for instance, if you're on the last climb of a race and you have to give your absolute best for 10 minutes, having that improved mechanical efficiency might actually end up costing you. Okay. Just a question on this. The, um, in the old days, a lot of pros used to spend a lot of time in the off-season riding fixed gear bikes. Mm. And there's always a debate whether that was really a, a good thing to do to help you with your pedaling. And I think a lot of it as well is, is depends when you start cycling. So if you start at a very young age, uh, often those guys end up using restricted gearing, so they develop a really clean, efficient pedal stroke. Whereas if you're starting later, you tend to be much more of a stomper and that's so I think those factors play a big point as well. Yeah, so I mean the fixed gear is, in, is, is basically the same as on a track bike, so you aren't able to stop pedaling. What that's doing is it's forcing you to ride at a much higher cadence than you would normally adopt if you were just having riding a freewheel bike because at some point you might stop pedaling. So on the downhills and on, on rolling terrain or on the flats at high speed, you'd have to really pedal at a high cadence. And that very high cadence is teaching your muscles to switch on and off in a, in a coherent firing pattern. 
which is different to forcing yourself to apply uh, power throughout the pedal stroke. So even with stomping, you can stomp more efficiently in terms of switching on your quads and switching them off again at the bottom of the pedal stroke compared to an amateur or somebody who's new to the sport where they actually have what we call co-contraction, where your hamstrings start switching on at the same time as your quads and you get a very choppy pedal stroke. So that was really focusing on that what we call neuromuscular efficiency. Um, and that's different to trying to force yourself to ride in a round pedal stroke. That's about turning muscles on and off quickly. And what the French used to call souplesse, having what looks like a nice supple pedal stroke. And that is exactly the, the, the fixed gearing and then also the limited gearing that we had for juniors is there to try and force them to have those higher cadences. Also to protect their joints. Um, something I had done with a, with a para-athlete of mine who has a spinal injury is put him on rollers and I'd make him do a lot of work on rollers and stuff and that improved his efficiency and his pedal stroke significantly. Mm -hmm. And if that's on a, on a para-athlete, it would have to translate at some point also to an able-bodied athlete. Mm. Um, but his power, pedal, stroke, everything was, was vastly improved once he, after a lot of time. So what's road. happening there is because on rollers you're not <coughs> moving forward like you are on the road, and when you're on the road, so your kinetic energy, in other words, your weight moving forward, mm. drives the wheel around. And on a roller, what happens, and it's the same on an indoor trainer, is that, that wheel slows down with every, every time you're not applying force to the pedal. And so you're actually forced to push all the way around the pedal stroke to stop it from slowing down. Mm. Otherwise, you get that loss of momentum yeah. or inertia. And, uh, and so that's one way of forcing somebody to develop around a pedal stroke. And in a para-athlete, that may be very important to them because they may only have, for instance, a limited function in yeah. one leg. So they have to rely on the normal leg or the, or the, uh, the, the non-disabled leg to drive that power and in that case it's very good for them but what we're saying is in, in an able-bodied individual uh, focusing excessively on that might not be the best yeah, idea. Yeah, just benefit. Yeah. I was wondering then if there's not a, and uh, ties in quite nicely with John's point on uh, about the rollers and I mean Mike spends a lot of time on his on his kicker um, and Steve just bring back to the fixed gearing I think you pedal a lot more I think well, obviously in a fixed gear you have to mm. pedal. So I, I wonder if there's not almost like a no like a training training effect where you, you you're pedaling more on a fixed gear or on an indoor trainer or on rollers than you are. There's no freewheeling or coasting, yeah, yeah. etc. So it's, it's almost continuous. like a subtle yeah. increase in load in the session compared to if you were doing it on the road. Maybe a beneficial effect. Yeah. Yeah, there's no resting. Yeah, and that's that. Like running. running. I think that's a key thing. Yeah, yeah. you never you never get a chance to accumulated uh, metabolic stress because there isn't that little downhill yeah. when you stop pedaling. Yeah. Might explain why I hate indoor training so much. I Amen. Like Amen. Sharp burst, <laughs> rest on the downhills, sharp burst. <laughs> this continuous exercise thing isn't for me. Yeah, well, Steve said like it's like running, but I, I rest a lot when I run. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down and run. There's a bench. Off his top. Just on that, um, on the last question is um, kind of uh, the one thing I have picked up if I watch a lot of the pros in South Africa is that even though he's gone from road to, to mountain bike now, but if you watch Waylon at any time, Waylon Wilcock on a bike, he never really stops pedaling during a race. Like even downhills and stuff, he's continuously pedaling. And you think that that would possibly have some effect to his continuous like stroke or efficiency and stuff like that, instead of going, stopping, going, stopping. Yeah, um, it may well be, and as Ben said, it's just that continuous just activity that, it's, yeah, that he's like been doing for so many never, years. He never really stopped. Just on this thing, I can always remember years ago racing, simple race like the Argus that everyone does here, a bunch on your road bike in the front 
absolutely flat out in stock gearing and you'd have these juniors like Douglas Ryder was one in restrictive gearing, legs are blurred, just cruising <laughs> next to you. And always fascinated me that these guys, if they could pedal those sort of gears with bigger gears, how fast they were, and obviously they did get faster. Were they producing much watts at those sort of RPMs? Yeah, so, so power is a product of force and velocity. So you can do it in two ways. You can either push hard on the pedal or you can pedal fast. And so one way to produce that power is through velocity. And, and as I said, alluded to before, restricting that gearing uh, and forces them to produce the power with the velocity, which reduces the force part, which means that there's less force going through the joints. And that's why they introduced that restricted gearing. One of the things was to prevent injuries. So it prevents injury because you don't have to produce so much torque. But the answer is yes, you can produce power. You just got to have the speed to do it. So the, the key analogy is like a, a, a 4x4 versus a Formula 1 car. Formula 1 car produces a lot of power through revving very high, but a, a diesel engine or a 4x4 produces a lot of torque. Really big cylinders, but slow speed. Same power, but application is different. Yeah. Should we move on to the next question? Cool. This one's uh, from Matt. How important is base training? Does the old thinking of low slow steady distance and many hours in the saddle still apply are there more efficient options um i'll answer that um first off south africa in general is sort of base mad um especially over december and stuff everyone is just base 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 so um i do believe it is it is important um obviously it does apply differently to different athletes athletes with a bigger training history can have more uh, hours etc in their legs and over the base period versus an athlete that sort of just started training um, which can't really handle that sort of training load um, the the hours of when you do see some people over December and November and that doing sort of 30 hour weeks and you sort of see on Strava what they're actually doing and they're just sort of riding four five six hours every day to me it's sort of wasted time um, I'd rather do half that and get a hobby and go do something else um, what I would, or what I think is important in that is just add maybe one, sometimes two quality sessions in during your base phase, whether it's a strength phase, strength session, like over gear work, torque work, um, or a very low <coughs> sort of intensity session, um, scattered out wide over the week. Um, and just you know, sort of increase it. Typically, I normally increase an athlete's sort of hours a week, about three hours a week, um, up until their maximum hours of, of their uh, volume. I mean, <coughs> this is a pendulum that swings the whole mm -hmm. time. So, your traditional cyclist from the from the previous century was completely besotted with doing distance on a bike, and yeah. it still it still pervades the peloton these days in Europe. You know, the the top professional road cars are doing in excess of forty thousand kilometers of riding a year, which is really astronomical types of, of volume load. And then uh, about a decade ago, we started to see a lot of studies which looked at high-intensity training. And they did find that high-intensity training gave a lot of the same benefits that all that endurance uh, did. And it did it in a fraction of the time. The pendulum recently, in terms of research, has swung a little bit back again, where we now see that high-intensity training and endurance training, although they both affect systems similarly and results in terms of performance are the same, they do target different aspects of the physiology. So now there's a, a swing back to mixing it in terms of getting in the volume, but also making sure you get in the intensity. And that brings us right back to what we've been doing for many years, which is periodized training, getting in the volume, 
But I agree with you, getting in the specificity as well. So combining that with strength, doing things like you know your fast sessions, yeah. other aspects which give you that extra benefit, and then at a later stage incorporating the benefit. But uh, in terms of the science, there clearly is some additional benefit of getting that volume in. Yeah, definitely. But the key is, I think, to make sure that you incorporate everything and don't do just one, which yeah. is a tendency that we have in South Africa. Is everybody mm. goes volume mad. Yeah. And there's no sort of quality in that in the hours in the week. Absolutely. Definitely. Just out of my own experience in dealing with athletes, when they talk base, I always stop them and correct them and say, it really is an aerobic phase we're talking about. Um, and during that phase, we, we are emphasizing volume and we I specifically emphasize key sessions that are slightly below threshold just to be able to build volume. And that volume isn't just ours. So it's not just about riding your bike. Um, there are structured sessions as as Jerun and and John agrees here. Um, and I've, I've I've definitely seen it in several occasions. People that neglect an aerobic phase do not build that large aerobic engine, and therefore they do not get the same benefits out of a high intensity phase after that. So just jumping straight into high intensity phase, you're going to make big gains, but you're going to be capped due to having a low aerobic capacity, growing a big aerobic engine and transitioning from that aerobic phase into a high intensity phase will give you a better end point as opposed to just doing high intensity work. I give a, When I give a talk on this, the, the big analogy that I give for that is the Eiffel Tower. If you've ever been to the Eiffel Tower mm. and you look at it, it's, it's, it's composed of three main sections. And if I, I equate the top section to high intensity training, it's the tallest section, but it's also the narrowest. And on its own, it couldn't get much higher because it doesn't have stability. Whereas the bottom section, although it's not the biggest, is the widest. And base training gives you that foundation from which you can build a much higher peak. So it's almost like a like an Eiffel Tower. And without like technology, yeah, mm. each component has its has its role. If you've got no time, or you, in other words, you've got an event coming up soon, or if you're pressed for time during the week and you can't fit in the base, you can still get really good performance. And you can get that out of doing high intensity training. But if you're a pro and you've got the time, getting in the base training will allow you to reach a much higher peak than you would if you just did intensity. Hmm. Perfect. And just to, at, at the risk of sounding like a broken record today, like there are a couple of components that determine our load. So volume is one. So I think the, um, obviously during a base phase, we generally try and ramp the volume up to probably have a maximum as we're finishing our base block. But just keep an eye on that intensity as well. Uh, and make sure that the majority of your rides during that base block are at a low intensity. As Mike said, there's nothing wrong with adding a bit of structure or one or two um, quality sessions or sessions with goals and uh, per week. But uh, those those longer rides, just make sure you keep the, the, the intensity nice and and low around our sort of what we call zone zone two. Um, just on the volume thing again is often with young athletes you see sort of juniors and stuff doing 20 odd hour weeks and typically if I do work with a young athlete I take which is something I learned from Ben years ago was that whatever their age is if they're 18 or 17 that's typically what I use as their their maximum hours for the week unless they have a long training history and load prior to that but typically up, up until sort of 19 20 years old I don't really 
go anywhere over that um, in terms of maximum hours. That's actually a, a nice little yeah. uh, easy easy way to work. And it even, out. I've never used that. Before. Even that's quite aggressive. I feel for sort of eighteen hours for an eighteen year old, they yeah. could actually yeah. get away with a lot less. Yeah, but at, at yeah. the end of the day, it's that sort of one week of the year mm. that will exactly. be on eighteen, and then after that, you know, they're sitting on what seventy percent mm. of their max volume mm. um, with the intensity. So. You're I'm funding. doing far too little volume then. You've turned it around. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just you often see guys, like youngsters doing like back-to-back five days of four or five hours and it's just just too much, uh, personally, I think so. No, I agree. Um, so yes, it's important to do volume, but just add quality into it at the same time. Right. We have a, the the, the next question. one does actually link quite nicely to, to the discussion we've already had. I don't know if we want to continue and just add a little bit. Kylie's question, do you want to read that, Jaron? Uh, sure, uh, it does. For someone with limited training time per week, i.e. 10 hours or less, <coughs> is it more beneficial to only focus on cycling for fitness or is cross-training such as running and gym work worthwhile? And Matt said, similar question from the next uh, person, and, and that's uh, the same person who had the previous question. Matt says, we see athletes like Nino Schurter spending lots of time off the bike in the gym. When should someone consider cross-training and what should you focus on? Mike, I think so, that's Yeah, more. so um, <laughs> although I really love watching those Nino Schurter videos, they have really caused me a pain. <laughs> because <when laughs> I'm <Likewise>. sure... <laughs> Everyone's on the shirt to gym program. <laughs> There's a lot of laughing here because I think we've all experienced this as coaches. They see the videos and we get the instant email. I want to do gym work. No, <laughs> or, or I've gotten hold of Nino's program. Can you fit it into mine? I've no. got a spare skateboard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, 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 so just going back, when I start working with athletes, I try and explain to them, and I think this pertains specifically to, to Kylie's question, is gym work really is the cherry on top. It is able to, Jeroen mentioned that Eiffel Tower, it's putting the flag on top of the Eiffel Tower. Um, so professional athletes that are already doing absolutely everything are able to get a little bit more out through doing strength training. The average Joe that has, has a very busy lifestyle, um, has, has a demanding week, and able to add a push, only do 10 hours, they are probably going to get the most benefit through riding their bike for 10 hours. Now, this is a controversial statement because there is a lot of evidence for strength training, but a lot of that evidence pertains to people already doing a lot of, of on-bike work. Um, Jeroen wants to butt in here, I'm going to let him. I, I, I just wanted to say, I agree with you, um, on the, but it, it, a, a lot of that evidence is about functional strength work relating to on-the-bike strength work. Mm. And I, I think in, in certain, in, particularly in women, it's something that's been neglected in the past. And so a lot of functional the success I've had yes. with Ashley Passio, when the main thing that, although there are a whole bunch of factors. One thing that I introduced into her training, and now with Heidi Dalton as well, who's just won national champs and, and, and subsequently as well, um, strength work on the bike. For women, I think it's particularly important for them to be able to develop torque, and I think uh, they benefit a lot from it. But to, answer, to back to your first point, in men, and, and particularly in elite athletes, I think it's the cherry on top as yeah. opposed to being 
yeah, no, over important. No, yeah, no, no, just to emphasize, I was specifically talking um, about uh, when I was talking about strength training, I was talking about in the, in the gym. gym. We all prescribe a lot of strength work, and I try and explain to athletes that the strength work, the functional strength work Jaren mentioned, um, that we all incorporate, and these are the, the low cadence intervals. That is your gym session. You can do it on a bike, and the, 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 the ability to transfer that into race performance is far greater than, than we're doing in gym strength work. Mm-hmm. The in-gym strength work really is the cherry on top if you're really maximizing all your it can also It can also be a very big detriment. With Nino Schurter in particular, all the cross-country athletes were wanting to do very large strength training sessions uh, and incorporating that all the time. And I tried introducing this with a couple of athletes, Phil Bass, Brendan Davids, etc. And in actual fact, what we saw was a reduction in their performance because the gym left them so sore and tired yeah. That they weren't able to complete the required training on the bike so the training load actually dropped in terms of the specific specific training that we we're doing on the bike and the performance went downhill rather than the other no, one. what you do not see in the nino shirts videos they film him doing a set of heavy squats but what they're not telling you is when in his paradise plan is he doing that work mm-hmm. And on so, what day with the session prior on the bike? Exactly. How is this program looking? And I can tell you, when you are seeing athletes uh, or YouTube videos of athletes, mountain bikers, cross-country races, doing heavy work in the gym, that is out of competition. They're not racing anywhere near that time. They're probably in a base phase, and that's why they're able to, to, to lift those weights. If you go and do a heavy weight, weight sex session, it is going to influence you. You're going to be sore for two to three days, and your performance on the bike is going to be poor while you have DOMS, which is delayed onset muscle soreness, from the lifts. Did you say heavy weight session or heavy sex session? I thought you said both. Or oh, either or. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you've got on your brain. No. Um, I was going to add to that is um, if, you, if you are a, a relatively well-trained athlete and you have introduced or are thinking about introducing uh, strength training, then just don't forget to add that to your load for the week. So unfortunately, our garments uh, and, and polars and all our head units and stuff, they don't pick up that load, so we don't get a TSS from it. So everyone tends to ignore the effect uh, that that's going to have. That is going to add to your load for the week, which means it's going to push your sort of levels of fatigue up for the week. So don't, don't ignore the strength training if you, if you are uh, introducing it. Um, very interestingly, there was a systematic review published recently on the benefits of strength training among cyclists. And um, what the study showed, one of the take-home messages were that there is no benefit in doing strength training if you do it in addition. There was only a benefit to strength training when you actually replaced an endurance session with strength training. So just throwing it in um, isn't going to do any benefit. You've got to replace load, and that talks to what, what Ben just said. Right, we've got time for probably one more question, and I think this one's probably one for you, Steve. So um, Robert asks, should I buy a power meter to use on my average aluminium road bike, or should I leave the power meter and use the money towards a good carbon racing bike? I want to start training and racing more seriously, and I'm stuck between the options. Well, uh, the real answer is a power meter wins every time. However, um, cycling is a is a really um, opposes game right now. So, if, if you're serious about your sport, um, power meter on an average bike you'll get much more benefit. 
Um, if, if fashion is, is of no consequence to you, leave the carbon, do the training, get your fitness up and correct, uh, and introduce a, a nice lightweight bike down the road. That's it. I mean, aluminium, although carbon seems to be pervasive these days, uh, and, and one of the brands that you guys sell is Cannondale, and they've continued to forge ahead with aluminium. And I looked at that new CAD 12 that they've got, and that is a magnificent bike. I mean, that's... It's, uh, it's lighter than most carbon cool. bikes. So, yeah, amazing. Yeah. So and there's aluminium and aluminium, well-priced. So you've you got to look at all the options. Um, you know, when you say an average aluminium road bike, obviously, you know, we're not really sure what you're talking about. But a cheap carbon bike could be worse than an average aluminium road bike as well. Yeah. That's also important. The quality of the carbon is, you're is super not, important. Yeah, you're not going to get a power meter for a 1984 Hanson yeah. at the same time. So you also got to weigh up your odds on what your aluminium bike is. Mm. Mm. So it's but, a, not an easy question to answer. Yeah. But I think ultimately, you know, if you're serious about your racing, we're presuming you've got a reasonably decent alley bike. Um, getting your training sorted and a power meter is, is key to that. So. Yeah, I think there also proviso is that you know what to do with the power meter. Otherwise, you're just looking at very expensive numbers flashing on your, <laughs> on your garment. But with, without knowing what to do with those numbers, uh, you're not going to make much progress as well. So, so the real question would be: Should I invest in a coach or get myself a racing bike? That's probably. But unfortunately, we're way too biased to answer that. <laughs> yeah. Although we, there, there's an article on the hub where we do uh, describe basically. Uh, how to use a power meter and why you should get a coach and why you should get a coach we'll we'll put links to those maybe under the yeah. under the podcast um, <laughs> but it's the same question asking if they should buy 30 grand or 75 grand deep section wheels or 10 grand power meter and unfortunately normally the the wheels win versus a power meter and they just when you go that slow, everyone looks at your power meter if you look wheels. fast you go fast that's, that's <laughs> the rule 100% apparently look good going slow Right, that's a, a wrap for today. Thanks, everybody, yeah, for great. this second of our podcast series. And we look forward to getting more questions on the Hub and uh, going through them in our next podcast.